This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready to go? Yeah, man. Good to go. All right. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and I am super excited because I am talking to my friend, Mert Tansu of Tansu Knives. Mert, how are you? Good, buddy. How are you? Pretty good. I, you know what? I was so, I saw on your Instagram not too long ago, I was so jealous and anxious at the same time because you just went to see a rugby game. Yes. Look, uh, I did not grow up with the rugby. And rugby is a new thing, but this was the first time I've been to a live sporting event since we, we don't need to mention about the old uh, COVID and all the BS. But... Oh, we're going to mention it. Yeah. We're going to mention it. <laughs> well, I'm deep in the shit, dude. I, I'm like in the fucking weeds right now. So why we're mentioning it. Yeah, look, you had a you had a scarier scenario than most of the other people, especially your wife working in the health industry and you being from New York. That's the... That seems to be the where it was pretty bad. And in Australia, we, we managed to keep it under control. And yeah, a couple of weeks ago, there was a rugby game between New Zealand. The New Zealand team is known, uh, known as All Blacks and uh, Argentina. And that was the, the game was, I think, two days after Maradona passed away too. So it was it was quite emotional. When yeah. the... When the and any New Zealand national team plays with any other international squad, they're doing their war dance known as Haka. And just before yeah. the Haka dance, they lay down the Maradona jersey in New Zealand. Uh, they lay down a Maradona jersey on the center of the field. It was quite emotional. Wow. That must have been amazing. Yeah, it was. Because, but, but the fact remains is, and, and I mean, you know, COVID-19, global pandemic, Australia seems to be, have the like they they got it down to the point where people are starting to get now we're we're in december you're starting to your life are do you feel like your lives are getting back to normal yeah sort of sort of it's coming back to normal you still have that thing in the back of your mind if somebody if somebody gets close to you like people are freaking out i think that's the best thing ever happened because you know the personal space thing that exists in u.s wasn't in australia before right and I'm glad that now people are more aware of the personal space thing. And other than not crowded in the places, you just got to change a few things. There's a sanitizer everywhere you go. But yeah, I, I think the, it's starting to feel almost normal. Almost. Hmm. Well, I, number one, I, have to, I owe you a huge debt of gratitude because last year around February, you had posted... Uh, something about you put, I think you posted a roll of toilet paper. <laughs> I know you posted going. a roll of toilet paper with like a hundred dollar symbol on it. Yeah. And I was like, what is going on? And you said, you said, this is February. I think it's February, January, late, late January, early February. You said they're starting to hoard toilet paper in Australia. That's where you live. You live in Australia. So I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, this COVID 19. I had heard of a COVID 19. Hillary and I started, my wife and I started talking about it in December. She had had friends of hers who she were colleagues she worked with who had connections in, with china and said and who had told them there is something going on late december so we had been starting to talk about in our family talking about coronavirus in january when you started talking about the toilet paper i immediately i didn't want to be one of these guys to go to the supermarket and hoard cases of toilet paper so i ordered online a crate of toilet paper 
the crate of toilet paper shows up, and my kid looks at me and she's like, what is this? I said, this toilet paper. And she goes, you are out of your mind. She told all of her friends, my dad just bought a pile of toilet paper, and I said, I, I got this bad feeling. And next thing you know, it's when it hit us hard, she looked at me and she says, I used to think you were crazy. You were right. So you, Mert, made me look like a star in the eyes of my child. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome, man. It was I, bad. I can imagine the grin that you had on your face. Like, oh, yep. She told daddy. her friends. She told her friends. She was in a school, and she said to her friends, my dad's crazy. He bought all this hand sanitizer and toilet paper. He, he's nuts. And next thing you know, he's just, she's like, I have to apologize. I made fun of you in front of my friends. You were right. I was like, yeah, thank you, Mert. Mert, Mert told me from Australia. He told me, he told me all about it. Yeah, it, it was really stupid, man. It was really stupid. In, if, if shit goes down, toilet paper is not going to be the first thing you need. To be right. able to use that toilet paper, you need food, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Without food, there's nothing to buy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, even now, you know, what, what nine months later or so, the, sometimes our supermarkets are either run out of toilet paper or they run out of paper towels. We were two weeks out from Thanksgiving, and it was really like it was a hard push to say to people, maybe you shouldn't be getting along, getting having these big Thanksgiving meals. Maybe you should be just kind of like keeping it cool. And people didn't. And now friends of mine and my wife's <laughs> colleagues are saying that the hospitals are starting to kind of like pack up because two weeks, you know, two weeks after Thanksgiving. And, and the, the difference now in New York, and it's getting bad, it's getting bad again, but it's not getting as bad as it was in April. And one of the reasons why, as I've been told by doctors, that they're starting to understand how to treat people are aren't de- they're able to prevent people from declining as much. Like once they yeah. get to the hospital, there are fewer deaths than there were back when it was really bad in the summer. But people are still they're still not wearing masks. They're still getting exposed. They're still being exposures. People are still getting sick, and it isn't. It's just. It's like it's exhausting. It's super exhausting. And, 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 and now the medical people are getting sick. My wife just offered to, uh, she offered to take the, uh, you know, when the, when the, when the vaccine comes out, she, she put herself in line to get it. And well, I just, we want this thing behind us, you know? Yeah. Look, the, from what I can tell, from what I can see outside, the use of mask and all that stuff is being politicized in us. When you look from the outside. Right. And some, some start viewing as a breach of their rights and all that so yeah be, since it became politicized you know it's going to be split from the middle and that's how it looks like looking from outside the people who were saying that oh, i don't want to be wearing mask in australia it was like a probably a couple percent that was right. a couple percent in entire population everybody understood yeah we have to wear a mask if you want to go back to our normal lives this is what we have to do suck it up and now we did it and also because we are an island and it, it's easier to isolate if you're an island and if you're controlling who's getting in and out of the country. Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. The country itself is bigger than U.S. in terms of the landmass, but population is a lot smaller. Yeah. Well, it's it's the we it, 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 as far as I'm concerned, and the, the interesting thing is is you know as far as knife makers go, you are on a short list of knife makers who are actually professional chefs. You make chef knives, but you were actually a professional chef. So 
the restaurant industry has been something that, I mean, I worked in kitchens. I worked, used to work for Charlie Palmer. I have friends who are cooks. I got tons of friends who are out of work right now. In this country, I feel our government from all ends has totally like let us down in two fronts. The first front is preventing, you know, get, you know, in, instead of making it, making it a priority to say, <coughs> let's, prov- let's, let's save everybody and let's just like kind of work together towards uh you know making this thing go away and let's 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 do our 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 share to help our neighbors and be considered to others that's number one they just you know they dropped the ball on that but the other thing is is like restaurants and small businesses have gotten destroyed in and the restaurants especially the senate the congress the the governors the the mayors they have done the worst job to help small businesses in this country it's and especially restaurants it's it's awful it's totally awful yeah once what one thing with the the governments across the board not just us didn't realize it is the restaurant industry is feeding so many people and also giving so many people employment opportunities directly and indirectly so yes you have the cooks servers and all that but you have the you have places selling paper goods you have places selling and you have the farms it's a, such a tight connected knit people didn't understand the effects then then you see all the people there losing their jobs and you know all of a sudden a viable industry that people want to do careers with it or people want to work in just got destroyed over over a few months it's it's heartbreaking you know because is, as you know it's such a the, the margins are so thin before all this and it was such a, you know, a hand-to-mouth business anyway. They couldn't survive months and months and months. And it's like having to figure out ways in which to do takeout or, you know, laying people off. And it's just – a friend of mine just closed – he had three restaurants. He just closed them all down through March. He's just like, there's just no – you know, we're just going to – for the sake of – where we are in Westchester now, they're about to turn it into orange. Or the, 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 the spikes in, in, in infection is so high – yeah. That they're just, they know that it's going to be takeout pretty soon and there's going to be, you know, it's just, the whole thing sucks. The whole thing yeah. sucks. And I just, I, when I look at you guys down mm-hmm. in Australia, I'm just like, you know, this could have been us, but, you know, whatever. But talk, so talk about the takeout. And as you've been in the restaurant industry, you know the, how this business works. You set up your kitchen, you set up your menu, you set up your things and all that for either dining or very tiny percentage takeout. Like a lot of the finer restaurants, they don't have capacity for the takeout. They're not set up for that way. So what are you gonna do? Yeah, your your local pizzeria, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. But right. what about what about the other places? Well, have you seen what Daniel Balut is doing? <laughs> he he is maniac, one of the greatest chefs in the United States and possibly in the in the world. He's got his restaurant Danielle on Park Avenue. Yeah, it's on Park Avenue. And it's one of the most famous restaurants in New York. It used to be the the best restaurant in New York. This guy's Daniel Blue just doesn't get any better than that. Three Michelin stars. Oh, I mean, forget it. Yeah. He built like these little tiny chalets outside out of plywood and, you know, like tarping and stuff like that. And he's got space heaters 
and he's creating this apres spe- uh, skin. I can't expect people to show up in shirts and ties out in December yeah. weather in a, in a lean-to. So he's got like, he's making it apres ski style. And it's like, it's just, it's the hardest sell of all time. No one wants to pay, you know, two people for dinner, $400. They're going to sit out in a plywood shed while <laughs> freezing their asses off with Daniel Balud. It just doesn't work. Yeah, last we, uh, I think it was last month. I was we had friends over in the valley, and we wanted to do a little tour. And we end up stopping at my old workplace, and I end up, I end up seeing the owner, my former boss, and we were talking. And I think the conclusion I came to was, hospitality and restaurant business is like a tropical flower. All the conditions have to be perfect. Yeah. Economy, people's mood, everything has to be perfect. Like, you know, the soil, the heat, everything. The second there's a problem, first thing people are cutting down is the dining out. And then you realize how easily replaceable you are are in terms of, like, the first thing people don't want to do is going out, eat, and what do you do? (laughs) Not not through your own fault, like, you're screwed, done. See, this is why I think I feel as though the government has let the restaurant business especially down. And I know that... There's so many chefs out there who are in, in the United States who are trying to get the Senate to pass these, you know, relief bills because it's like they've really, they've really, it's just, it, it, it hurt, it hurts because it is such a, it's such a, it's such a delicate business in general. But I mean, I just don't know. I mean, these people can't, I know, I know restaurant guys who open up their restaurant. They can't be, you, you, you can't be out of business for a month. You can't pay the rent. You know, I oh. just, no. I just can't. I can't understand it. And I and and now you're starting to see the restaurants that are trying to keep their head above water are ones with like a very loyal fan base. <laughs> but even with us, I mean, when in April, my friends' restaurants were we were when we were my wife was up in the third floor with coronavirus. I wanted to be supportive of the restaurants. We were eating at my friend's restaurant. We were ordering in for my friend's restaurant three nights a week. I'm just like, how long can we do this? Yeah, you know, you can't do. It. I mean. It's not enough. It isn't enough. Well, I think the restaurant business models are, they're not sustainable. Because no. as you know, the profit margins are so low. And you're, you're paying, you're paying fuck all to the cooks and the servers. And you expect you're relying on the turnover. And if anything goes wrong, there's, there's no fat. There's nothing to save you. Yeah. You know from the many of the restaurant owners, if they have a two bad weeks, they're starting to panic. If they have one bad month, you know, like all of a sudden the mood changes. Or one bad Saturday. Yeah, one bad we Saturday. We had one summer. Once we had one summer. It was last summer. It rained almost every other Saturday. Yeah. And these outdoor restaurants were getting crushed. They were getting crushed because they were, you know, on a good night they were doing like you know insane business. And then at insane business means you got to make sure you have a lot of servers. You got like you know, 25 servers for a, for a huge place and all of a sudden it rains, then what? You can send them all home. It's it. Look, I want to get back. <laughs> We're going down a bad road right now, but we'll get back to it. Yeah. So I want to know about your life because you grew up in Turkey, didn't you? Yes, correct. Where? Tell me about what was life a young Mert Tansu in Turkey. Look, um, I I was an athlete. I was playing basketball throughout my high school years, and I was going to be play bas- I was going to play basketball for uh, for a living. That was the goal, and I was I was doing good and all that. 
And I realized when I got into to the college, and so the system is not same. Like there's not an NCAA AA system. So like you pre, you play professional from when you're 16, 17. So I was playing as a young player in the pro league, or I was I was on the bench because I was young. But then I realized I'm going to these away games. I'm doing all these practices and the other players who are not going to school they're practicing twice a day three times a day and i have to i'm falling behind my work uh, i'm falling behind my school and all that then i realized and also my body's starting to give up a little bit my left knee and my left shoulder then i realized like this is this is not going to be a long term i can't be i can't be busting my ass to be a bench warmer huh. and that must, then, have, that must have been kind of painful it is to, it is to feel that way Look, think about you spending 15, 20 years on something to realize uh, that's not gonna. It's not gonna be it. That's I'm. I'm not. Yeah, you realize like with your best effort, it's not gonna cut it. So I realized, okay, I'm not gonna be a professional basketball player, and I was studying hospitality management, and I said, I like food. I I want to be a chef. Yeah, like what a crazy idea. Because when I said to this to my parents who both were white-collar workers, my dad being a lawyer, my mom working in management of the, the central bank, like, like almost like federal bank. That was unheard of. Their son saying, I want, to finish, I want to finish college, but I want to be a chef. Because back then, chefing was something that you do out of necessity. There wasn't any culinary schools whatsoever. This is like late 90s. So being cook was, you'll start from the dishwasher and... Then you move on and you become a cook and that was it. Like we didn't have the glorified chefs, the food network, nothing was there. So I decided to become a chef and all of my parents, friends, they're in shock. Thinking like you really? work in yeah, because you were you're going to work in the kitchen, dirty kitchens and hot kitchens. You know, it wasn't the most uh, friendly work environment in the nineties, as you can imagine. And I finished I finished my school, I finished uni university and as soon as I finished university, a close friend of mine, she said that she's going to U.S. for a one-year like an internship thing. I'm like, sure, why not? I, I got nothing. I got nothing holding me in Turkey. Might as well, might as well just like do like a almost like a gap year. Yeah. Go to go to U.S. for a year, and I end up uh, I end up going coming to U.S. with a friend of mine to um, Chateaulan in Georgia. So I. I was going to be there for 18 months as an intern to work in the kitchen, just the experience and right. fun. And that have been that's a good that's a good amount of time to be in a restaurant. Yeah, yeah, it was the plan, and I ended up meeting my wife. So, huh. yeah, I wasn't planning on I wasn't planning on getting married, but all of a sudden, I met my wife and realized she's the one. And then I called my parents saying, "Hey." I'm going to get married. Can you guys get the wedding organized? <laughs> wait a second. Wait a second. Wait yeah. a second. Wait a second. Yeah. So you go to you go, you 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 line up this this internship in 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 Georgia. Yes. And then what was your what at the time? What was your wife? What was where she did was, you meet her? She was server. You know, server she and was, chef. She, yeah. She oh she she cooked too. No, she was a server. She was serving in a restaurant, and I was. It was the hotel's restaurant. I was cooking, and she was server, and we met. We started dating, and after after six months or so, and I knew, I knew she was she was it. 
So that's a verbose. That's a that's a kind of the forbidden thing to do, you know. Yeah, I know. Dating man. dating coworkers at a restaurant is a. I know. That's <laughs> a that's a treacherous situation. I know. Well, we worked great. Like a lot of people cannot keep that stuff professional, but we we kept it great, and she was a great server. And if I made a mistake, she was the one that let me know more than any other server. So I couldn't I couldn't f it up. <laughs> I had a I had a when I was at this restaurant, my chef. He was he was going at it with every server and bartender, and oh, we had man. to pull him aside and say, "Listen, <laughs> listen, you can't do it anymore. You gotta, you can't do it because it's being tough on us. Because if something happens, we have to let somebody go. You're making it very hard on us. And it was always just this thing like we had to keep our eye on old Scotty because, you know, <laughs> he uh, he he was uh, he didn't. He didn't know how to say no. He didn't know how to say no. And it got to the point where it was just like we had to sit him down and we had to say, you have to, you ha- you're, you're killing us here. You're killing us here. Because one bad thing happens and then we had to lay somebody off. What are you going to do? Yeah, look, ours was, we always kept it professional. And so we decided to get married and I called my parents saying, hey, we, going, we want to get married in Turkey because it's a big thing for the parents to see the, their kids' wedding. Right. And my wife, Danny, is like, how this is going to work out? Like, are we going to show up there? I'm like, yeah. And we literally showed up to a wedding. Wait a second. She yeah. had, she'd never been to Turkey before? No, no. We've been to Turkey. And funny thing is, the she she was saying, what am I going to wear for my wedding dress? And I said, we'll get it made in, we'll get it made in Turkey. We'll get it tailored in Turkey. Just pick a, pick a design that you like. And she's looking at me like as if I got two heads when I explaining to her just pick a design we'll go to taylor and she'll make it in a few days and she's like no 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 i'm like yes honey this is how it works <laughs> and she's looking stuff on the computer or over the internet the things that she likes and she's saying is that going to work what if we what if i don't have any plan b i'm like honey this will work trust me so we landed on monday and monday afternoon we went to this uh lady who was going to make her dress and then he's showing the pictures and she's still not convinced she's thinking that she's gonna have to wear like a t-shirt or jeans or something to her wedding (laughs) (laughs) then we the lady measures her looks at the pictures and two days later and she says come for a check the how you like it or like just a general fit up and we arrive and the lady pulls out this dress exactly how my wife sent the pictures from and and she tries it on she loves it and she says oh is there three stripes here because the and she's counting she's not questioning she's not she's not bitching about it she's saying is there three stripes here i don't know did did the one that showed you had four stripes and she looks at the picture and she's like the lady who's doing that she's she's you can't tell like she's so sorry and she's feeling so bad then he's like no no it's okay and the lady rips the half of the dress off while my head on it. And my wife is panicking. No, please, it's okay. It's okay. I just, no, it's okay. I didn't mean that. And obviously my wife is panicking because wedding is next day. So the, so the, so the, the, the dressmaker just ripped it off of her? Yeah, just dressmaker ripped the side off. They had this stripy thing that she was showing. Right. She realized she made a mistake. And my wife was like, no, no, please, no, because wedding is next day. Right. And next day, we go there back again and had the four stripes of whatever design it was exactly the way she wanted. My wife couldn't believe it. Wow. Yeah. 
So we got. Jeez. Yeah, it, it was a stressful, man. It was a stressful thing because. Was it stressful for her when she met your parents? Yes, it's stressful. I mean, my 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 dad my dad doesn't speak English. My mom speaks English. My brother speaks English. But you go into a new country and it's it's it, it must not be easy. You go into it a country. It can't be. Yeah, you're gonna get married. Oh there. my god! Yeah. Meeting the parents for the first time right before the wedding. Yeah. Ay ay. Well, <laughs> it turned so, out so right. The, so, was it a beautiful wedding? <laughs> oh, it was a beautiful wedding. It was beautiful, and uh, she she met my friends and my family, and I think we had like a two hundred people or something in our wedding. Two hundred people? Yeah. Oh my god! So she 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 shows up to a country, yeah, never been before. No, meets a family, meets her new in laws, yes. and then there's a two hundred there's a two hundred person wedding waiting for yeah. her. Adam must have been out of control. Yeah, it was. It could be Adam Sandler movie, man. It's a. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's such because it's such a completely different culture, and yeah. you, your, your parents must have been thrilled. Yeah, they they were so happy to see the young son get married and all that. And my uh, then uh, my wife's sister, uh, she came with us too, so she wasn't just by herself. Yeah, that must have been very. That must have been exhausting for her. That must have been a really a really scary moment. At at this moment of like. You know, being married is is one of the most great moments of 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 your life, and to just to, that must have been an incredible feeling. I look, and they both loved it. My my sister in law fell in love with the country. Same thing with my wife, and you know, the, at least just the food and food on its own is enough to make a trip for. And we stayed there for at least I think like ten days or so, and we did a little honeymoon, we did a couple trips, and. Came back and lived in U.S. for another uh, four years. And so wait, so let's so you come back to the United States yeah. and then did you did you end up living in New York at all? Or? No. So we lived in we lived in Georgia. We lived in North Georgia, and I worked in Atlanta. So I was driving like a hundred and twenty, hundred and forty uh, miles every day, back and forth. Oh. Yeah. Bullshit and what time. kind of food were you guys doing? I was working in the hotel's restaurant, and then I I moved work and I I started working for a different hotel. I started working for Four Seasons, which was the shittiest experience ever. Really? Uh, Why? Uh, the, it was the two, it's two thousand eight. The you know, economic crisis is crazy, and it was a really bad work environment. I hated it. I hated every second of it. Then I started working for a different company and. I love that place. Uh, it was called as Villa Cristina, and I get along with the owners and my executive chef perfectly. I was the executive sous there, and I loved it. And but at that time, when I started working for the Villa Cristina, we were also look already looking for to make a move to New Zealand or Australia because the hotel that I was working at, they what they do is when they open a place up, they send a little team to get the place up and running. Right. So op- opening team. And there were talks when I was working at that place, Villa Cristina. There were talks of the hotel we were working at opening a property in Australia. And back then, we have no kids whatsoever. We we're like, yeah, we'll do it. It'll be one year of experience, just like the experience I had yeah. coming to US for a year. And and so we decided we volunteered. But at this point, the talks of the hotel are there, but there's nothing on the ground. Like there's no concrete plans whatsoever. And 
I start working at this place, I love it, and all of a sudden, and this Australia dream is coming more into reality. And so we start giving notice to our both of uh, our workplaces. I mean, obviously, my wife's work knows it because she's kind of like almost like transferring. And in 2010, we decided to come to Australia for a year. Hmm. The plan is go to Australia, get the place open up. And after a year or so, once everything settles, go back. That was the plan. Well, it's 2020, almost 2021. Two kids, <laughs> two dogs, and a mortgage later. Plus, we're both Australian citizens now. All right. Yeah. It's perfect because I was always wondering how you made it over to Australia, and it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Because I got that opportunity, too, when before my daughter was born, when I was with Charlie Palmer, we almost, we got, my wife was looking for a nursing position, actually, and we were in talks made that I might go out to California to help start up the, the restaurant there. We ended up not doing it, but that is one of the great things that, you know, great opportunity for, for you and your wife to, you know, you're young people, you don't have a whole lot going on. I mean, you have a lot going on, but I mean, it's a great opportunity. Was it, a, was it difficult? So when you got to Australia, you were still working for the company to open up the new place. Yes. So we had our contracts because to be able to get a visa, you have to provide a contract with the company and all that. And we got to Australia. We moved into the hotel, like the resort, because what happened was there, there, was, a, there was a golf course and it was a big golf course and they built accommodation the hotel side of it and we moved into the hotel started living there for till we get our own house and all that and the transition was smooth at first but when you when you travel or when you come to australia you shouldn't be expecting to have the same convenience of the u.s in yeah. our mind we were thinking that australia is going to be just like u.s with a bit of kangaroos and a bit of koalas no it wasn't yeah. the case Plus, we were living in a rural area. If you, if that was Sydney, like look, if you're in a Sydney, Melbourne, or any big cities, if you don't look at the, if you don't look at the significant buildings, it's hard to tell. If you right. don't look at where people are driving, big metropolitan cities, they almost feel the same. But since right. we were in a rural area, at first, a lot of the convenience of the things that we are used to in the US weren't here. Five o'clock, everything closes. And we're like, what do you do? You want to go? <laughs> yeah. Five o'clock, things close. You go to the supermarket, some of them close at seven o'clock. And, you know, in US, you're used to this Walmart and a lot of the places being 24-7 and you can buy everything. Now you have to like really plan your shopping, really plan everything that you want to do. So you don't end up with like not having milk, bread, whatsoever. But on the other hand, you're not expected to work like crazy. In my last job, in uh, in my last job, I was just promoted to executive chef for a, a club they had for a city club. I was working seventy hours, sixty-five, seventy hours. My wife was working same, sixty-five, seventy hours. And as a hospitality professionals, we thought that was norm. We thought that was that was it. We thought we had to do it. And when we got to Australia. Our work contract was 40 hours or 38 hours. If you were doing more than that, it was becoming a problem for the business because then they're going to have to pay you overtime or 
or you're starting to accrue some annual leave because you're working more than the contracted hours you have. How can you work in a restaurant for only 40 hours? You don't. I mean, that's like, you, you can't. That's like, that's insane. Look, if the success of business is relying on your people working like one and a half or two people's worth, your your job, the business that you work in is not sustainable. Yeah, I understand. I completely understand. It's fascinating because I can't, I, I would think that because the, it's in a rural place. Yeah. It, it, but I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a, the resort had a, uh, must've had some sort of a higher clientele. So there must've yeah. been certain conveniences nearby. Uh, you will think that, but not as much like you, you, you're in the resort. I don't know if you can hear, but my, I, think I can, I, it's okay. Let them, I, I like an Australian I think, dog. Hang on. I'll, one second, Jeff. Sorry. I have to let my. All right. No problem. Off. We're going to we keep going. Don't worry. One second. Don't One worry. Second. We'll get this squared away. Here we are. Mert Tansu. <laughs> I wish you could see. He's got to let his dog out. This is Aust- the life of an Australian knife maker. He's running back. He's running back. He's running back. He got the dogs out. Now he's all squared away. He's back. Yeah. He's that, back. That was my three and a half month old boxer. Boxer puppy. <laughs> and I call her. She's like a trophy wife. She's, <laughs> she's beautiful, has beautiful eyes, such a bubbly personality, and she's fun. And if she gets attracted to any stranger, she might start kissing him. But <laughs> not, not the brightest dog. I love her, but not the fucking brightest dog, I got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have one of those. <laughs> we, got, we got two. One's, one's amazing, and the other one might be, you know, we think she must have, when they, when they, when they, uh, when they fixed her, they must have gone through her brain. It's a hard dog right there. Look, this is, this is my wife's dog. Because we had boxers, uh, we had a boxer before we left. And when we came to Australia, we pretty much said goodbye to our dogs. Because our boxer and we had a dachshund, sausage dog, they were really old. They were 10, 11 years old. And right. we didn't think that we'll be seeing them back again. Which, unfortunately, we didn't get to see him again. But, yeah, we had a boxer before. They're such a good kid-friendly dogs, and they just want to please you. They just want to play. And Yeah. And, All right, so anyway. so back to the, the – you're, you're in the facility. You have a new contract. You yeah. guys are getting your lives squared away. And how did you leave the restaurant business? How did I leave restaurant business? So before I start um, – so – I'm working in restaurants in, in the hotel. Then right. I end up finding a different job for the winery. They were looking for executive chef. And when I came to Australia, I took a step down. I became back executive sous, which was okay. But I found a job that was paying better as an executive chef. And I want to do my own thing. So, And in this time, I start getting more interested in the high-end knives. I wanted to use the better tools. I want to use the best tools I can afford. And I start collecting knives. So my my move leaving the restaurant business, obviously I had to have something on the side to be able to provide for my family. But yeah, I start collecting knives. And then one day I want to order a custom knife because what I was using, I wasn't happy with it. I have a big hands. I'm a large guy. And I wanted a taller knife with a bigger handle because I didn't like the handles I was using. And... When I was contacting the Japanese makers or their retailers, they were saying, no, 
we cannot do that or no this is the knife you like it you use it i'm like i don't want this i want this and that so i contacted a few makers in us and i got myself a custom knife i waited a few months and box came in i'm excited i've been i've been looking at the tracking every day mm. and i opened the box it was a beautiful damascus knife and a beautiful colorful bird handle but it cut like shit it was awful it was awful i'm not going to name the maker the, but then i realized oh this guy who made it knows how to make a knife but clearly this guy has never seen or used a kitchen knife right that was the one of the eureka moments because not that i was thinking about being a knife maker whatsoever but at the time i realized there's a guy making these selling these and he doesn't know what the tool is going to be used for then i said to myself i i don't know how to make a knife i know a little bit of the process because i've been reading and all that how difficult how difficult it could be and i found a local maker when i say local i mean like five hours drive distance keith <laughs> flutter journeyman smith so i decided sure. yeah i decided i'll just take a course from keith flutter and i'll make my own kitchen knife and i'll be set i don't need to get in to talk to any knife whatsoever that's it i'm just gonna go make a knife and i'm done so i went to his place and two and a half days we made a smaller smaller kitchen knife and i know at that point i was in trouble you know jeff like when you're about to do something bad you're like yeah. you know like there's a feeling because in my in my mind i was cheating on my craft i was cheating on the cooking because i had yeah. devoted my life for the last i don't know 15 years to cooking and all that deep inside i knew like i was going to do this and when i got back and i start i start buying equipment and small grinder and small things and files and all that small things to make knives and i start making knives as a hobby on my days off is is it don't don't you think i mean i've always felt number one i've always felt that most knife makers now especially because you know kitchen knives have become so hot yeah. in the knife making community i've always felt that there's so few custom knife makers who ever worked in the kitchen before yeah but the other thing is is like i also know that a lot of custom knife makers they don't cook at home because i just i see the things that they do i i've always been surprised because exactly what you're saying is that the guy made beautiful but damascus knife but he's never actually used it and cook you know maybe you cut a piece of paper cut a toilet paper roll but he doesn't cook anything at home I'm, that's always been something to me that's been very fascinating but what makes what's fascinating to me is that you separate the two between cooking and knife making i've always felt that everything is the same you take ingredients proper yeah. techniques and you're giving it to someone i've never really seen a difference between cooking and making sculpture and with bladesmithing and forging it's so much closer to cooking because it is an exact science. Yes. There is finesse involved. There is the feeling of understanding of where, when it's right or when it's correct or when it isn't correct. There's, there's like a little bit more spontaneity involved that makes it seem to me kind of closer together cooking and bladesmithing than, say, like cooking and cabinetry. I mean, the cabinetry and you know, fine woodworking – it's much more scientific. It's much more exact. It is. It's like a math. It is like a math. Yeah. With bladesmithing, it's so much closer to cooking 
because there is a bit of humanity involved and there's a bit of like having a gut feeling of when something's correct. So I'm surprised that you think that it's kind of like they're separate. Well, uh, they're, they're not separate per se, but if, if the person who's making the tool, like let's think about a person who's making guitar. If that person can judge the guitar by playing it, and if he realizes like one of the keys not sounding correct, and goes and fixes it, versus a guy who follows the recipe and makes a guitar or instrument, but he cannot judge, he cannot test it to, to its limit capacities. Yeah. I don't know if you're in the motorsports. Um, late Artin Senna, the, one of the greatest car racers, uh, F1 racers ever, what separated him more, most than the other drivers, he will go to the pit and tell the engineers how the car was reacting in some curves in different conditions while most of his count most of the races in that time period they'll finish the laps and they'll just go to bar and to get drunk hmm. and him being able to tell the engineers what they should improve on because he had the capacity to push the tool that he's using to its limits i think as a good chef as a i don't want to say i'm a good chef but i have a good knife skills because i I've done a massive amounts of banquets and massive amounts of numbers. And if you have a bad knife skills, you don't survive. Hmm. You don't survive in those, in, in those environments. And now with having good knife technique that I can tell if the knife, where, in which areas the knife is failing. But I agree in, in that regard. Like, yeah, knife making is more similar to cooking, but there's a still a lot of science involved. So... Because you've had so much experience with volume, yeah, and just out of curiosity, in regards to, I mean, let's just take out, let's take out sharpness. Let's just yeah. forget sharpness right now and edge retention. Because when you're going a volume, your edge retention, yes, you'll get more out of it, but you still have to sharpen the knife regardless. Yeah. To you, what are the most important things that people um, are overlooking when they're making culinary knives? Um, what are the I think people need to use a, they need to use one good knife and take that one as a base. So without using a, so for example, let's say Jeff, you want to open a restaurant and if you're opening a restaurant, I'm sure there's one restaurant or there's couple dishes, couple things that you want to do as good or even better. Like I'm sure if you want to open a restaurant in the neighborhood, I'm sure there's going to be one restaurant you want to be comparing yourself and setting yourself as a benchmark or see as a competition, right? Yeah. And you want to do it just like them or better. Most of the, most of the guys making... Uh, so when you're saying if somebody's making kitchen knife and they're not doing well, I think the first thing is they're not using a good kitchen knife and they're taking like, for example, Vustov or some people are taking the crappiest knife you can buy in a supermarket as your base knife. Hmm. If you're taking that as your base, even if you make a lot better knife than that, you're still, your ceiling is very low because you're taking a not so successful knife to begin with. You're just trying to make it slightly better than that. Yes, you achieved your goal, but what you were trying to make wasn't good to begin with. Yeah. 
That's a very good point. I mean, I was I was thinking about it because I saw an interview that you did. I think I don't I don't know was it it was a short video. I think it was in regards to your knives and stuff like that, and picking out a knife. And you were talking to the customer what they should look for. And one thing that you said that really kind of caught me, and I don't think that a lot of custom knife makers really think this way, is you said board. You were talking about board space. Yeah. And you were saying that. The most important thing is to kind of understand your board space, how much space you have when you're yep. using a cutting board. If you're in a restaurant or you're at home, if you only have an eight inch board, you don't want a ten inch chef knife. Yeah. And I think that I think that that was a, was such a it was such a very elegant way of of kind of combining the knife making with the practicality of of the, of um, of what you need in the kitchen. Yeah. Look, what we make is we're, we're tool makers. I see knives, I see chef knives. Yeah, there's a bit of artistry in it, but at the end, we're trying to make practical tools. It might look cool, but if it doesn't do the job, it's useless. It's a glorified letter opener for me. Mm. And the reason that when somebody wants a knife, I ask them a lot of questions. might sound silly at the point, at the time, but they're relevant. For example, if I say, are you, cook, are you, are you going to use this knife at, at home or at work? Because... That will also changes things. How much board space you have, as you said, because if you work in a very cramped kitchen, you have a tiny cutting board, tiny size. Yeah, you don't want a 14-inch slicer, although the 14-inch slicer will, will make you feel more like a man, but you know, yeah. you don't have the space. And volume. Yes, I worked in a large volume kitchens. I prefer the slider thicker on the spine, but again, thinner on the edge, more like a workhorse type of knife. But if you were doing less volume, if you're more into precision stuff, yeah, then I will, I will definitely recommend you a thinner knife that you have a better control of your angles and cutting. So all of these, these small factors determines and changes the outcome quite a bit. So after you had that two-day adventure with Keith yep. Flutter, who's a, who is an awesome, awesome knife maker, awesome guy, um, you're in this country that is filled with amazing knife makers. I mean, it's almost like, and it's like you'd think that it's all like Bowie knives, but it isn't. The level of the level of 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 com, uh, just un- incredible chef knives in Australia is just stunning. But it's, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't like that when I started. Well, tell me about that. So I want to do a kitchen knife, and at the time when I started looking for people who do kitchen knives, I'm looking at the kitchen knives that people did, so I can say, okay, that knife looks like okay. This guy might have an idea, or this guy might not. There, there was no kitchen knife maker. People, there were knife makers who made kitchen knife designs, but there was no kitchen knife maker. Hmm. Yeah, when I, when I was in the Australian blade forms and things like that, I was showing, this is a guitar I made, and Japanese-style handle, and the comments were like, yeah, it needs a, needs a full tank, mate. needs a full tank and a bolster. <laughs> like, no, this is not it. That's not that. Yeah, so custom kitchen knife scene explored in Australia, but there wasn't that many. There wasn't that many when I started. There, there, was, there was none. I will say there was none. When was that? Uh, six, seven years ago. Huh. That's yeah. amazing. Because I, six or seven years ago, I started to see guys like uh, Will Morrison. I guess he nah, he doesn't really make a lot of culinary knives. Well, he just stopped then, making oh, a few. And then Oatly and all those guys. And 
I'm 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 amazed that it just took off as well as it did because you guys such a there's such a there's such a uh, the the food in Australia it's so much more diverse than I mean you know just because of the seafood and everything like that and your proximity to Asia I would just imagine that the culinary scene in Australia were super hot I know Sydney and Melbourne have an incredible uh cul- the culinary tradition in Australia is is really kind of higher end than people realize so that makes me, I'm surprised that that's the case. Well, I think the reason that uh, we have more knife, we have more kitchen knife makers per capita than any other places, food scene is very strong in Australia. And second, people are spending a lot more to their food. Hmm. So average, on average, a lot more people spend more on dining. And they're, they're spending more on the, the indigenous. Like I went to the Sydney fish market a couple of days ago and... I'm waiting for them to clean my fish and I'm sitting, I'm standing right by the counter and they had these beautiful scampi, like $90 per kilo, like $45 per, per pound. And while I was waiting there 10 minutes, they had to fill that tray up twice. Oh my God. Yeah. Like people don't mind spending a lot for their, for, for the food. And also same thing when people are cooking at home, they would like to use good, good knives and good materials. So, yeah, the U.S. might have a, if you look at the average house income and all that, or average what a person in the U.S. is willing to spend on a knife, that might be more. But I think people spend more for food in Australia. I think you're 100% right, because, the, the, you know, the, the culinary tradition in the United States is, is still very young. Because the difference, I mean, you tell me, the difference between Europe and the cultural traditions of, in the United States, the cultural traditions of Europe, the history in the, in the United States, are, there isn't, it, there was like the, a stunting of passing along food information. The, in the United States, there was no true um, culinary uh, uh, indigenous food besides like, besides like Cajun food. Yeah. And a lot of the culinary tradition came along from, um, from actually from slaves or people who were brought over or immigrants, uh, enslaved people, uh, Indian uh, or uh, Native American people. The the I, when I was talking to Quentin Middleton back 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 a while ago, um, he he comes from this you know a very proud le- le- line of the Gullah Geechee people who yep. were people who were brought over from the Gold Coast of um, of Africa yep. because they were perf- they were like years and years as scientists who developed the cooking of rice and they brought that whole their culture and their and their technology of rice making and they brought it to the carolinas which created the whole concept of rice you know production in the united states mm-hmm. there's no history of of uh, especially after this you know when you know during when women started to go back to work and stuff like that and there was less of this culinary tradition uh of passing along recipes is like the French. You, know, you get this, you get the recipes that are passed down to hundreds and hundreds of years. There's less of that tradition in the States to the point where, especially in the Northeast, people are, if you go to any supermarket, especially the tri-state area, generally speaking, the fish counters are tiny because Americans are afraid to cook fish. Yeah. They think that you have to either fry it in their, in their homes or whatever, but Fresh fish is is something that's almost it's harder to to get, and it's because Americans are have a hard time cooking fish at home. Yeah, well, or, or you see the usual suspects like farm salmon, 
and tilapia and, and that stuff. But when when you come to one thing, I I noticed it's quite different. The difference between U.S. and Australia is when you go to the grocery store, U.S. has a massive canned food section. Canned food right. aisle is massive, and fresh food section is always small. Here it's the op- opposite. You got so much fresh stuff and fresh food is everywhere. You see a lot of maybe variety is not that crazy, but you see stuff that's rather local. Like when you go to when you go to I remember I used to look at where my stuff is coming from. I will order green beans or haricots, and you look at the label Guatemala. When you look at the green beans coming from this and that, I know when I go to my grocery store, the milk comes from a farm five k's away, like three four miles away. And has a still like thick cream on it. If I pour it, and it'll form a thick layer of cream on it still. So we still get a good quality local produce. That's I that's, think we're lucky on that. That's unbelievable because you know the the whole story of you know supermarkets, especially in the in the, in the United States, is is that you don't have to go down the middle aisles. Yeah. If you the only thing that, that's worth a damn is on the outsides. So you know you have you know you're, you're if you if you you could tote with the exception of you know spices and little bullshit things, mm-hmm. but the the aisles are what gets you because it's nonsense. Like if you just stay to the outside of any supermarket, you'll get whatever you need. And the crazy thing is, is like I don't know why, I don't know about you, but when you were in the United States or not, but I totally look at people's um, carts and I judge them. I look yes. what's it, when they when they unload yes their, yes <laughs> <laughs> when they unload their carts onto the counter, oh. I judge the shit out of them because it's just like it's it's their bills are so high because this food is such garbage, all this frozen bullshit. It's, I always judge people like God. I can't, we can't be friends. Uh, I, or, I'll tell you a funny oh, story. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story. I bumped into my mother a few years ago at the supermarket. And this is before when when she was driving and getting her own groceries and stuff like that. And she was kind of staying away from me because she's diabetic and she shouldn't be eating certain things. Blah blah blah. And I look, I was, ta- I say, hey, "Mom, how are you? How are you?" And she and she just got very quiet. And hey, Jeff, how are? I looked in her cart and it was like candy bars and ice cream. And I was like, "Mom, what are you doing?" And she's like, "Don't judge me. I'm getting the fuck out of here." She was furious with me because it was just like you shouldn't be having all that stuff. And she goes, "What do you think? I came to the supermarket to be judged?" I'm like, "Well, you kind of did." nothing better than that and then 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 the recycling too like if somebody's if i like if i'm walking the dogs this recycling day i look in the recycling box and i totally judge people that guy's drinking a lot that guy has a lot of wine that that is that four bottles of wine in one in one uh, one week not bad you know what i didn't understand is when you see those salamis and like those pepperoni stuff that sits in the room temperature they put so much crap into it 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 is okay to keep in the room temperature. That was the thing that I, I didn't understand. Like, oh. So if that's okay to sit in room temperature, what do you expect to get out of it when you eat it? You know, super, the supermarket has now become, for me, I, my wife hates it. And so I do it all. She Actually, my mother, well, my wife can't cook at all. She doesn't like to cook. And, she, you know, I went to culinary school, so I do all the cooking and it, like it, it, it's it, I'm paying for my basically I'm paying for my business. I mean, I'm paying for being at home and that everyone happy because I cook. I, I can cook. I can cook. But when I go to the supermarket now, especially with the coronavirus, <laughs> there they have made these. I don't know if they've done it where you are, were or are, but they put uh, these they put these arrows and they're trying to get people to kind of go in into one direction. They don't want people, you don't want to try to keep people as far away from each other as possible. 
So they put these arrows, you know, there's basically like a one-way direction. And it's suggested, obviously. There's not people, like, you know, preventing you from going down. And, you know, they make announcements over the loudspeakers, you know, for those, you know, because we're trying to prevent, you know, we're trying to keep everyone safe. We'd really like you to kind of follow the rules. If if it says to go one way in the aisles, go one way in the aisles. And, you know, people have been, you know, they're wearing their masks. And there's, I don't, in the, a few months ago, I saw a couple, like, you know, dilemmas. But other than that, it wasn't a big deal. But now you're starting to see these people who are just, like, defiant against the store by, like, going against the the traffic you know symbols and so they're so they're going the wrong direction in the aisles and they get mad when you give them a look so i'm starting to see much more uh aggression in with people because of you know they don't want to follow the, the rules they, they don't want to follow the line if i want to go down this aisle i'm gonna go down this aisle you can't make me go around it's crazy yeah i, I don't i don't get it but that, that well it sucks of, yeah it sucks because it's like it gets to the point where it's you people get mobbed up and people get you know angry and there's like a lot of humphing and harumphing and stuff like that and it's gotten to the point where it's like it's become it's become like a very like usually when I go to the supermarket I'll, I'll park the car I'll park the car next to a corral so I know where to you know dump dump my my cart afterwards and then I'll have to like sit down with the car quiet for like five minutes to kind of psych myself up to go to the supermarket and I put them. <laughs> M95 mask on, and I put the eye protection on. My wife wants me to wear eye protection. I wear eye protection, and I just go in there. I got my list. I just kind of go in there and get the fuck out, and just and it's like you get back in the car and you just like let out this huge sigh of relief. It's the worst. It's the worst. Jeff, you said that you went to culinary school. Which one you been to? I went. It used to be. It used to be called Peter Cump on Twenty okay. Third um, Street. And then he was uh, uh, a New York cook who who used to teach classes in his apartment in uh, in the seventies and early eighties. And then he, they created a school, and it, it was called Peter Kump. And then it turned into the Institute of Culinary Education, and they built this beautiful, beautiful uh, school on Twenty Third Street. And it was just, it was oh my god, it was so much fun. It was the, that was the thinnest I ever was. <laughs> I was thinking so. Just before we left U.S., I was thinking to be an instructor in a culinary school. I, I started thinking about it. And when we got to Australia, I realized I got a lot more spare time in hand. And I started thinking about doing it, like taking it more seriously. So while I was living in Australia, I went to U.S. to take some cooking classes uh, in CIA. But they were the... I, I, there was a little circle. Uh, like if you follow these classes and if you take a few more, then... It will also count as like uh, proper formal classes, uh, so it makes it easier to get access to become a teacher. I was thinking, so I went to CIA to get some cooking classes when I was when I was in, in the California one or New York. No, Hyde Park, New, uh, New York. Oh yeah, right yeah. by me. It's nice, man. Nice place. I loved it. The, you know, the funny thing was when I was younger, my father had a place not too far from Hyde Park, and he was a vintner. He was a winemaker, and it was interesting because he kind of started white wine in the Hudson Valley in New York. And he made a, a wine called Save All Blanc, which is an American French hybrid. And he, he caught the, he caught the uh, attention of New York. He was a, you know, New York guy and he got a country house and, and then he decided he was going to do something with it. 
And he kind of started in um, his wine business when uh, Coach Farms started doing their goat cheese business. And all these kind of farmer types, these gentleman farmers would kind of get together and then they'd be friendly and stuff like that. And the CIA and Hyde Park kind of latched on to him. So we would constantly be doing things with the CIA. And when I was very young, my grandfather, my, my mother, when my parents were married, my mother's father was babysitting me. And I guess my dad and my mom went out for, you know, whatever, out for dinner or something like that. And when they came back, the story goes that my grandfather was sitting up at, at, the, at, the, at the kitchen table waiting for them. And he says, Ben, we have to talk. And my, and my dad says, well, what's going on? What's, what's wrong? He's like, I got a phone call from the CIA and I'm very concerned about you. And my dad was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, it's not very, it's not very common to get a call from the CIA. And my dad said, no, Bill, it's, it's the Culinary Institute of America. It's not the Central Intelligence Agency. So there was, you know, back those, in the those day. Those guys, the they age, won't call. They won't call. <laughs> yeah, they won't call. They won't leave a message saying, this yeah. is, you know, Joe, Joe from the CIA. They just show up and like, you know, put a hood over your head. But I just remember, you know, the CIA, I actually was up there uh, before the, um, before the pandemic really started and we were going to do a job with them because i grew up knowing i don't know if you know this chef is he's a chef named waldy maloof he start he was the head chef at the rainbow room um for a long time and he was a very inspirational american chef his some of the cooks under him david burke was under him and all these yeah, guys and he he knew my dad and i was going to do something with him and uh it did fall, fall apart but you must did you like did you like hyde park Oh, I loved it, man. Like, I love the facilities and, you know, you see the youngsters, like, they're complaining, like, oh, it's not nice. I'm like, dude, you have no idea how nice this, the tools that you have here. You got, you got, like, six rationales in some kitchens. You got, like, containers and you got containers, like, from ground to ceiling. You have no idea. Once you go to real kitchen, you'll be fighting for these. So how long were you there? I was there for a week or two weeks or something. And what did you and what did you do? Uh, I did a I I took some pastry classes because you know most of the hot side cooks they struggle in the pastry. I wanted to get better in pastry, and I took some Mediterranean cooking since I was thinking about becoming a culinary instructor, so I can give those classes. But it was fun. So when you came back, what what got you? And at this point in time, you were still making knives, or you no? Were... I start I started making knives six seven years ago, and then I start. That became a hobby, and I start taking, I start making custom orders here and there. I feel like six or seven years ago seems to be like the the the, the big number with a lot of people. Yeah, because uh, you know, Mareko Mamasi is the same thing. Mareko said six or seven years ago. I'm around six or seven years ago. A lot of people seems it seems as though six or seven years ago was like a big was like a big a big turning point for a lot of people. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Do you think social media had a big part of that? I think social media and food network and there was a demand for it. And I think also people start seeing it as an artistic way they can. It's all good. My, my They're having is... a good time. You got, a, you got your son and the, and the dog. It's a very picturesque situation. This is like a beautiful Australian scene behind you. <laughs> my, my son is scared from the dog, but he wants to play with, with the dog. So. That's good. I you know, leave it alone, fun... buddy. Leave it alone. <laughs> the funny thing about the Food Network is, is I think the Food Network has completely created, it's changed the way, I think that it reinvigorated American cooking because without the without the Food Network and all these TV shows, 
Yeah. There really wasn't, there wasn't as, as much interest at home. Yeah. And now that people are starting to, you know, now, especially in the United States, people are home. They're having to learn how to cook, you know? Yeah, it's, it helped. It definitely helped. There was a, and the New York Times had a, a, a food writer who was very, it became, it became like during the pandemic, she was doing these pandemic kind of culinary uh, uh, things for people at home and what to do to, how do you cook it? How do you cook at home? And it became like being able to cook at home was such a huge thing. And I, for us, the biggest thing is, is like, how do you occupy your time? And you couldn't get yeast or flour forever because all of a sudden everyone was trying to become a, you know, a baker. Yeah, everybody was <laughs> a baking baker bread. The, for the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. But I mean, so when you started making knives, when you started making knives, yeah. how did you transition from a hobby to, to professional? It, it became a part-time business. And three years ago, when my wife tore her, uh, her patella tendon, uh, playing um, playing volleyball. Then I got the phone from my wife saying, "Look, I'm I'm in hospital." I'm like, "Oh no!" And that was April first. I'm thinking, I'm hoping that she's joking. She wasn't. Right. And then I had to take time off because we have no family network here. It's me, my wife, and that's it. Like we, I had to hire sitters to watch my kids, and also like kind of just just watch my wife at the time, so I can go to work and. Then I'm questioning myself, like, this this doesn't make sense. And at the time, as a part-time maker, I was starting to build a name for myself. I won a couple of awards, and I was in the magazines and things. And I'm thinking, like, if I can just do the knife thing, and it will be fine. Or, obviously, at, initially, it wasn't going to be as, as sustainable as my chef's salary. But I was thinking, like, I, I, can't, I can't continue this thing with... If something happens to me or to kids or my wife, we have no family network. And she's, hmm. and for example, I wake up and one of the kids are sick. One of the kids, and what do you do? My wife is already at work because she's leaving like six o'clock and she's at work in her office. And as an executive chef, it's not always feasible for me to say, hey guys, I'm staying home to watch the kids. Right. Then I realized I had to change my lifestyle. So, and that, her, rip, her rupturing or patella tendon also kind of was the initial kick, and her um, her cousin lived with us for a year as a as our babysitter, like a nanny. She was what helping us and watching the kids, and then it it it, it became more clear. Of, I said to myself, um, I'm going to be making knives, and I got into full time knife making, and luckily I did. I never looked back. Sometimes I'm having nightmares, like I'm in my nightmare. I'm seeing bosses coming and telling, oh, we are 35 people right now. Do you have any food left? And I'm checking the ovens and hot boxes. Like I'm trying to scrape the bottoms and I got nothing. And then I wake up to realize I'm not cooking anymore. The nightmares that I had in the restaurant business, because but, but I never really, I only cooked for a little bit. I got kind of pushed into management. So my fears, I had this I ended. Up, I had to leave because it was like I was. It was. It was affecting my marriage. I mean, we had just gotten married. I was working, you know, six days a week. I was opening the restaurant, closing the restaurant. It was such a production, and it was to me the biggest fears and dr- nightmare dreams I had were these waves crashing. I was on the beach and I was lying in the water, and these waves were crashing and they couldn't stop crashing and they wouldn't stop crashing, 
And then they, the, the waves turned into the public and the waves turned into the p- customers coming into the restaurant. And it became one of these overwhelming, it was this overwhelming thing that people aren't going to, I was overwhelmed by the customers. They're not going to stop coming in. They're not going to stop coming in. And it became this terrible dream. That I, That's my, anytime I have a dream with crashing water, it's always about like restaurant customers. And it was just like, it's just too overwhelming. But I think that something that's similar, you, you and I have a lot of similarities in the sense of like, and I think that a lot of people, especially now, you know, when we talk to our listeners on Knife Talk about the pandemic, and we actually just talked to um, a young guy who he got laid off. He's just started making knives, but he got laid off. He's a, he's a cook in California. He's been like in the, in the business for 15 years and he just didn't know what to do. And we were talking about, you know, I was telling him, I was basically recounting the story that. I'd gotten laid off from this carpentry job. It was a huge mistake. And then our daughter, similar to you, you know, our daughter needed, somebody needed to be there and it made sense for me to kind of work from home. And I was, I got to the point where it was, it became a necessity, almost for us, it became a necessity because we, we needed to make, we needed to bring more money in than, than just my wife's job. And, but we also needed uh, the ability to kind of take care of my daughter and make sure someone was there for her. And it was, it, it came out of necessity for me, but it sounds like it came out of necessity to you as well. It, it did. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad it worked out because, you know, it's such an unknown. It's such an unknown at the time saying, Hey, this is what I want to do for full time. Whew, that was scary, but I'm glad it worked out. Well, you mean that's, it's so... <laughs> That that was an what an what a what a brave move of you to do that. I mean, you have this position. You're that you're the head chef. You're the head chef of this restaurant, and then you make this very you know bold decision for the sake of your family. I mean, it's incredibly incredibly brave. Look behind every knife maker, there's a woman with a real job. Damn yeah, right. My, yeah, my wife has a real job too. But obviously, we we need both of our salaries to sustain sustain this. But yeah, it was. It just made sense, man. And how did you, you get? How did you get hooked up with Kev, Big Kev, Kev uh, Slattery? You guys are like kind of like the Abbott and Costello of of knife making. So they put us right next to each other in one of the knife shows four years ago, and the rest is history. We've been right next to each other in every knife show, and I think sometimes within a knife show, us being right next to each other is like another show on its own. And out of these conversations, we were thinking like, man, we should we should do like something. We should do because these conversations we're having are too much fun. Yeah. And then the idea came out, and one day we were saying to Kev, we did a couple live recordings, and I we, remember. Yeah, we said, why don't we do like a podcast or something? And that was the that was the first time you and um, Marco joined Knife Talk. Because I yeah. think Knife Talk was going on for a while on its own. It was the same time as recently as you guys started doing the Knife Talk. Then so yeah, so you you got a podcast now with Kev and Corin. It's called it's uh it's called Knife Making Down Under. And the difference between one of the things about your podcast that I love is that you make it very interactive. You do a live stream on Facebook. Yeah. And you're able to kind of that's the one thing about podcasting that's so that is the word the one thing that I hate about podcasting is there's no interactivity. You don't have a you don't have phone callers, you don't have you can't listen to it live. 
And what you guys have done is you're able to kind of create, you create a, like a radio show that you can interact with immediately. So it's, if you, if you're on Facebook, go follow a knife, uh, knife making down under, and then they'll, they'll do what they call a pubcast. And the great thing is, is when they normally do it, which is, uh, for them, I guess it's at nighttime, but it always comes up at six o'clock in the morning in, in, the, in the East Coast. So you can, you can, you can, when you wake up, you turn it on and there are these three guys on there and then you interact. Yeah. What we wanted to have was a, um, we want to be an informal session. Like, think about you going to a knife show and after knife show, everybody meets at the bar. Yeah. And you're just talking, just like random, you're talking crap, you're talking smack. That, that was the idea. Keep it very informal and, be open to people joining in and all that. And in some cases, it doesn't translate itself to a podcast form because you got to a lot of the editing and can you hear me? You can't hear me like all of that, but right. it's, it's fun. It's fun. It, it, that's the one thing that for podcasts to me, I mean, I've always been a huge radio fan and, and uh, actually this week was a big week for me and some radio guys because Howard Stern just re-signed for another five years. Yeah. And it was a very dramatic he had a very dramatic announcement and it was just really like classic radio and you're part of something and you're hearing it live. And that's the one thing that radio is so great is because you kind of create these connections with people. And when you hear it live, you actually stop and maybe you're in your car a little longer than you want to be, or you're not concentrating as much and you're part of something. And what you guys have done is you're, you're able to kind of like have that same experience, which I think is great. Actually, I got to give you guys a lot of credit because you had Bob Kramer on a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and that was just about as good an interview as you as you're gonna do. That's yeah. a that was a banger. Yeah, it's a hard to top that one. How good is he as an, as a guest? Yeah, he's. We were thinking about an hour, and we kept going for two hours almost. Here's the. I think you went more than two hours. Yeah. I mean, I was watching it for at least two hours. He was having such a good time. Here's here's the reason why. Here's the reason why Bob Kramer might be the ultimate guest, and it's not just because he's one of the best knife makers in the world. He's got stories. He likes to talk, and yeah. he was having a good time. The best part is, is you if you were on the Facebook watching, you know he was cracking beers every so often. All of a sudden, his glass was full again, and he was pulling. He's like, "Wait, were you guys gonna see this?" He pulls out this this Chris knife, and he's talking about the Chris knife, and. He legitimately seemed like he was having a great time. Yeah. Well, Jeff, we're going to have to do another session sometime because I was told I need to take my kid to a swimming lesson now. Well, that's fine. That is 100% fine. We'll do this another time, and then I will, uh, I'll, uh, I'll take care of this, and uh, we'll, get you, we'll get you on again for sure. Well, thanks for the, thanks for the chat, man. It was great. Well, let me just let me just fill it. Let me just give me finish this all out, and then we'll get you squared away. You gotta listen. You gotta follow Mert Tansu on Instagram, Tansu Knives. Go listen to his podcast with Corin and and Kev. It's called Knife Making Down Under. And next week, guys, I have a I have an exclusive, I have a exclusive um, interview with the with Nick. Anger. Nick Anger is going to come on the podcast. And then I got a special surprise for Christmas. Go over to iTunes, subscribe, you leave us a review. And then on, on, on Instagram Live, on Instagram, my bad, go follow us on um, 
the Full Blast podcast on Instagram. We got lots of good shows coming up, and we're going to have you back on, Mer. We got to talk later, okay? Thanks, man. Thanks, buddy. Have a good one. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.